You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Hello, how you going? Richard Watts with you here, taking you through till midday today. Another edition of Smart Arts. Big thanks to the Breakfasters, who you can catch again tomorrow morning between 6am and 9am. Now, on the show today, amongst other things... Ooh, there's a giveaway. I wonder what it could be. Um, ooh, a bit later on the show, then, I will be giving away four double passes to see Best Coast from the USA live to air during MAPS on Monday the 27th. So ooh, I might do that at about in about half an hour or so. So stay tuned for that. And it's going to be a really relatively casual show today, unlike the the last few weeks where I've been squeezing in nine or ten interviews. Today, uh, well, the Art Attack team unfortunately can't make it in this morning, so they'll be back with us in a fortnight's time. But on the show today, we'll be talking about the song cycle at the Butterfly Club, The Last Five Queers. Uh, there's a new play on at the Malt House Theatre called I Am a Miracle by playwright Declan Green. So we're going to be chatting to its director and one of its actors as well a little bit later on this morning. On the dance front, we'll find out about Sarah Aiken's set at Dance House. And on the visual arts front, we'll be looking at an exhibition called Thread, uh, which is on out at Monsalvat. It's the latest in a series of exhibitions that have been staged uh, and featuring uh, Australian and Chinese artists. So that's the show, plus quite a few tunes uh, and maybe a bit of commentary about what's going on in the world of the arts. The Australia Council uh, launching or releasing details of their new funding round this morning. So once those come to hand, I will uh, probably have a quick chat about that. If you're uh, an arts industry worker or have a friend who works in the arts, you probably know that there's been somewhat of of a degree of chaos in the sector over the last few months after the Attorney General slash Minister for the Arts, Senator Brandis, reallocated uh, a large sum of money from the Australia Council, which then meant that a new six-year funding cycle was cancelled and Other grants were put on hold. Everything's been in chaos. So hopefully today this Australia Council uh, announcement will make things a little bit plainer. But for now... Uh, It's five minutes past 10am and my first guest for the morning joins me now in the studio. Actor Tim Carney is performing in The Last Five Queers at the Butterfly Club as part of the Midsummer Festival. Sorry, the Midwinter Festival, which is presented by the Midsummer Festival. Tim, how are you going? Good morning, Richard. Very well, thank you. Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Now, um, The Last Five Queers is not um, a standard cabaret, as you would expect to get at the Butterfly Club. It's not a straightforward piece of theatre or comedy. It's a song cycle. What does that mean exactly? It is a song cycle. So it takes Jason Robert Brown's music and it combines those songs with a wonderful script written by Adam Noviello and Maddie Lee and it explores relationships and their complexities and their complications and resolves them at the end. 
Okay, so the the notion of an original uh, work is is great in its own, and to approach a story differently by creating a, a series of interlinked songs that tell a story. So rather than writing a musical, or rather than writing a cabaret with patter and and so forth between, how did you first get involved in the project? Um, it's interesting. I was doing another show, um, loving repeating at Chapel of Chapel, and Maddie and Adam saw that and spoke to me afterwards and asked if I'd be interested in coming on board with this project. And um, I had a look at the script and, and what their um, vision was and thought, yeah, it's a really good story which tells real-life um, stories of, of people's lives and and the way that relationships work and unfold. And I thought, yeah, this is really, really well written. So I jumped on board and started the rehearsal process for our first season, which was in April at the Butterfly Club. And that was just a couple of nights, wasn't it? It was. It was a couple of nights. It was very successful. It sold out those couple of nights. And so then as a result of that, the Butterfly Club... Um, has got the show back in for part of midwinter. Yeah. It's nice to, to have the opportunity to revisit a work to begin with. That's something that's fairly rare in the independent sector. Uh, but also the chance to stage uh, what is obviously a fairly um, complex work, given the, as we've said, it's a series of songs, it's an interlinked story, it's five different characters exploring all the ups and downs uh, of love and romance. So I think everybody's had their heart broken at some stage. So I'm sure there's a little bit of that in the show. There's also probably a little bit of joy, a little bit of desire. Talk us through the the moods and the shifts of emotion that the show uh, traverses. Of course. So I can talk about my character. Starts in a relationship um, and then has uh, a moment where he makes a mistake and then goes and apologises for that mistake. And it's about a new chapter and a, and a new moving forward. And it's left at the end of the of the show kind of as an unknown as to what happens between uh, the two characters that that my or the three characters that my character interlinks with so for an audience they can see those relationships and relate to those relationships and um, that being left kind of unanswered is is also nice Um, for me as an actor the material is so good to work with the songs are so well written and the script as well that for me it kind of changes every night in, in my mind what has actually happened and what will happen with this relationship moving forward. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and your your background. I understand you studied uh, a Bachelor of Arts in Music Theatre in Singapore. I did, Richard, yes. So I spent three years studying up at La Salle in Singapore, which was a wonderful experience, both culturally, obviously, and also um, educationally. And then from there I moved to London and worked um, up on the West End there for uh, a number of years, which was great, and then travelled the world... Um, in shows. Uh, I worked in Germany for a year and I've worked in Asia um, and back in Australia. So I feel like I've I've been fortunate enough to travel the world doing something that I love and am now back in Melbourne and doing this show, which is wonderful as well. Now, and the, the shows that you've done over that time in London, uh, Mamma Mia, for example, which is yes. a, a big, big, big production, mm-hmm. and then conversely, uh, Flower Children at Theatre Works back in 2012, I think, which yes. kind of quite a, a, like a, a passionate but small, independent, intense musical theatre mm-hmm. production. Mm-hmm. Which do you prefer, the, the, the huge, big budget gloss in which perhaps you're just part of a cog in a machine mm-hmm. or smaller, more 
more independent shows like Flower Children or indeed this one, The Last Five Queers. Yeah, so they're both incredibly different in their approach. And you're right, in the big commercial mainstream musical, you are just a cog. And it's, it's a wonderful uh, part to be to be in a show like that and, and to be a part of that. But I, I guess as an artist and someone that's creative, it's particularly fulfilling to work on something that you do have a say in it and you do bring your own life experiences to and you can work with other people on developing and creating ideas as opposed to just being told, you know, this is where you've got to go and this is what you've got to do. Hit that so, mark, sing this note. Exactly. Yeah. So they're both um, in- incredibly different and both have their own rewards. Um, but something like this specifically with the material that that I'm dealing with and that the rest of the cast is dealing with, it's particularly rewarding. What kind of input do you and uh, have you and the, the other cast members had into the structuring and the writing of the last five queers? Has it been a, a, a case of, because it's a brand new work, has it been a case of, let's, I'm not quite comfortable with this, can maybe that person sing that song instead and I'll sing this and let's explore and, and work this? Or has it been very much a case of the artists writing the material and then you you bringing it to life but not having that kind of creative input yeah there's a combination of both so um especially from our first season to this season we sat down and we said okay so what worked for us what didn't work for us what can we improve what can we take from the last season and and build upon and so that definitely has happened in rehearsals which has been great um not so much the material that's pretty much been set you know so i have um, my certain songs that i'll sing and and will continue to sing in this season but more so um, I guess from a character point of view so what do I feel that my character um, has developed and changed perhaps in that couple of months that I've had to sit on it and to process what's happened um, I can now bring that to the rehearsal room and have done so which has been really good as well so I feel like in doing it again the second time my character has been fleshed out a lot more through that rehearsal process. So uh, the work, The Last Five Queers, is by Jason Robert Brown, uh, a song cycle uh, co-written by Maddie Lee on at the Butterfly Club from the 28th of July until the 9th of August. Tell us about uh, your other castmates. I think there's there's five other, oh, four other performers. Four other, yes. So um, aside from myself, there's Henry Brett, who has the most beautiful voice that you'll ever hear. It, it is worth the price of a mission just to hear him sing Still Hurting, which is one of Jason Robert Brown's most beautiful songs. So he sings that incredibly. Um, then there's Maddie Lee, who um, co-wrote the book for the show. Um, there's Jack O'Reilly, who has just finished a season of Carrie and will go to Sydney to perform in Rent after this. Um, at the, the Hayes Theatre? At the Hayes Theatre, yeah. yep. And Rebecca Moore, who is a, a wonderful um, up-and-coming artist. So that's the five of us. Um, so so, yeah, and Lauren McKenna, she uh, she did the show originally. She's uh, doing Heather's at the Hayes at the moment, so she is unfortunately um, unavailable. But we've got Rebecca, who's wonderful, so it's uh, a really great cast. Let's step back a moment from the show and just talk about the landscape for musical theatre performers. We've just mentioned the Hayes Theatre, which, for people who don't know it, is a, a small, uh, very intimate uh, theatre space, but in Sydney, dedicated to musical theatre and cabaret. Uh, does Melbourne need something similar, that you th- that is a space 
just for that particular art form, do you think? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So before the Hayes came along in Sydney, Sydney had nothing like that. And so it's really transformed the city uh, culturally and arts-wise. Melbourne has a variety of different spaces that do facilitate that. But having the one central location, I think, is really pivotal for the art form and brings everyone together. So I would say, yes, a facility like that in Melbourne would be really beneficial. Well, if anybody listening feels like opening a small intimate theatre dedicated just to uh, to musical theatre and cabaret, I'm sure there'd be uh, a queue of people waiting to perform, uh, possibly my guest Tim Carney being one of them. Tim, are you a triple threat? That's a really good question. And for people that don't know, Richard's referring to singing, dancing and acting. Um, Richard, yes, I would say <laughs> you have to be in this day and age to, to be... Uh, employed in musical theatre you have to be able to do everything so yeah it's something that I'm consistently working on um, I came to musical theatre more as a singer and an actor and have had to work on my my dancing um, and yeah so uh, I, I go to dance classes now and tap classes and you know keep all of my skills up which you have to because um, the skill set for a performer these days has to be so so high to be employed. And there's so many more graduates coming out of the music theatre courses around the country as well. As those courses grow in number, there's even more people competing uh, for the, the, the handful of roles every year. It's fortunate for me, Richard, that I am a veteran in this game, <laughs> so I'm not competing with all of those very, very talented young men and women coming out of drama schools uh, because there are so many of them Um, and it's wonderful for the industry and the art form that so many talented people have such great training these days and it can only be a good thing for shows that are cast in Australia. Well if it certainly uh, just makes the standard even higher than it already is that's got to be a good thing. Uh, The Last Five Queers a song cycle is a new Australian work Uh, it's on At The Butterfly Club Uh, it got a four and a half star review uh, from uh, Melbourne Arts Fashion, which I think as a website has now changed its name recently. Don't quote me on that. Uh, It's on at the Butterfly Club from the 28th of July until the 9th of August. Tickets are between 25 bucks and 32 bucks. More information at Uh, thebutterflyclub.com. And if you've never been to the Butterfly Club, it's at 5 Carson Place off Little Collins Street in the city, just around the corner from Melbourne Town Hall. Tim Carney, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, I hope The Last Five Queers is a huge success. Thanks so much, Richard. It's uh, just gone 10.30. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. And just before that announcement, uh, or those announcements, I should say, we heard from Florence and the Machine from the album How Big, How Blue, How Beautiful, Queen of Peace, the name of the track. My next guests have joined me in the studio from the Malthouse Theatre. We have artistic director of the company, the new AD of the company, Matt Lutton, who is also directing the current production, I Am a Miracle, which uh, actor Bert Labonte is performing and welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Now, Bert, the last time I saw you, I commented on your comic timing and you told me you were mainly a comic actor. In I Am a Miracle, you made me cry twice. So, uh, and not like for I said, laughing. I'm a comic actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, 
I'm sorry about that. No, Richard. don't be sorry. It's, it, it's like, like a good for me. Any kind of emotional response from a work is a sign that it's it's working for me. It's really affecting me, regardless of whether I'm laughing or crying. But I did not expect to tear up within the first few minutes of the work. I maybe expected to tear up towards the end, but I just found the beginning of I Am a Miracle sublime and beautiful. Mm, so, yeah. oh look. Um, uh, it's funny because when I when Matt first approached me about this gig, it was one of the questions he asked me. He said, "Look, this is going to require a certain level of um, uh, catharticism, I guess." And, and you know, I've only seen your work. He'd only seen me do light and fluff, pretty much. <laughs> or uh, and I said, "No, I, I I have it in my bag. I just no one ever asks me to use it." So you know, I'm I'm happy to jump on board and and uh, and go there and. Um, uh, you know that's that's the, the the beauty of being an actor and, and getting new challenges all the time and and uh, I feel like I've I, you know I just turned forty very recently and I feel like people are actually taking me seriously now and they're like oh maybe you can do some serious stuff for us Bert maybe you can show us that that string so oh look it's great mate it, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible piece of theatre to be uh, involved with and um, it's certainly a journey every evening uh, and you, you, you know you get on the train and you, you kind of keep going till it stops and it's 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 full on and it's in your face and I think it's that kind of journey for audience and actor alike but um, oh, I think it's well worth the trip as well at the same time. Now the work is a, uh, not necessarily about uh, the execution of a man uh, in the USA who was uh, by legal standards mentally handicapped and should not have been executed. Um, that's The work r- references that but it's about much more. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think um, Declan Green often talks about the play being not about Marvin but sort of for Marvin Lee Wilson it's for this figure and it's he doesn't appear in it as a character but certainly a lot of the sort of cycles of history and ideas of misjustice and miscarriages of justice that sort of uh, led Marvin to live the life that he did we see being played out in the in the work so it's a piece that's got three separate narratives and they sort of allow themselves like a piece of poetry I guess to sit next to each other and resonate next to each other um, and one is uh, one is historic, one is a sort of set in the 18th century um, and is set in Suriname and is sort of going up a river and a, uh, about a young Dutch boy who's supposed to be capturing the rebel slaves. Um, the second one is a contemporary narrative in Melbourne and then the third is a sort of mythic or sort of... Um, you know, divine narrative actually about a sort of a, a figure who's trying to possibly reconceive, rewrite, we reimagine call history. Them, call them an angel. We, we can call, call them an call angel. It, the figure it's, an angel. It's, it's, it's an angel. It's an angel. It's an angelic being. Then, yeah. Now, what was it that attracted you to the script in the first place, Matt? When because uh, Declan's writing embraces a variety of styles, mm. uh, uh, and certainly his sister's grim work is one is one thread. This is much more uh, con contemplative and serious work that that uh, if people only know him from Sisters Grimm, they, I think they will be quite surprised by. Well, I think um, Declan, I mean, the, the Sisters Grimm work uses a great level of satire, you know, all the time, but it's always got a deep political undercurrent sitting there. And I think that that's still there in Declan's work as a solo playwright. But uh, what he originally approached me and the company with was the idea of looking at transcendence or looking at this idea of where a miracle might be occurring in, in today and, you know, whether that was possible, you know, or what those sort of ideas can throw up. And he brought to us those final words of Marvin Lee Wilson, which mm. were sort of, uh, it was when he was on death row, and he said, Is this right, Bert? He says, Take me home, Jesus. Take me home, Lord. I ain't left yet. I'm a miracle. 
must be I'm the must be, must miracle. be miracle. I'm, I'm a miracle. Yeah. Uh, so immediately, I was sort of really interested in uh, the journey that Declan was proposing. That we'd look at something, a whole level of sort of, like I said before, sort of cycles of history, and then how that could be possibly released. What was the attraction, Bert, for you with the script? Uh, Matt asked me to do it, and I said, "I'm available." Um, <laughs> sure. No, look. Oh, to be honest, that that was the the, the key was uh, we we discussed what the sh- the play would be about. There was no script when I agreed to do it. There was no f- final script. There was only um, some passages, and and none of those are in the play right now. To <laughs> to be honest, actually, nothing that was shown to me originally was is still there, uh, as is is the light with uh, new works. But um. Uh, I think it was um, just the, the discussion about the idea of pulling, ripping the world apart and starting again, uh, and could we achieve that in hmm. the in the Merlin Theatre? <laughs> could <laughs> we create can, a miracle? Can we achieve the... creating a miracle in the Merlin Theatre? You know, by the end of the play, and and, and giving a sense that we're start we've started again. You know, what would that be like? Um, and you know, that's a it's a huge challenge, and I was like, <laughs> sure. But also knowing that we could never actually create a miracle. No, so no. it's all then, that you know, it's you know, a fantasy. But, uh, the joy of theatrical illusion. That's but, right. Yeah. I mean, the other reason also, I mean, I chat to Bert, was because every performer had to be able to sing as well. That was really important. That the, the from, from the very beginning of the project, uh, Declan and I spoke about that this would be a piece for voice, spoken voice and singing, that we always thought of it as one very large crescendo, that we would be building to a moment of sort of ecstasy or be building to a choral idea, which is where David Chisholm as a composer was really important. So um, not only, you know, did we want to see, you know, Bert's extraordinary performance abilities as an actor, but it was also making sure that everyone could slip between a spoken word into a sung voice. But you, you just said that the the aspects of the script that you were shown aren't in the the ultimate piece. So there's a lot of trust involved in embarking uh, on a brand new production in that case. Yeah, look, I've been lucky enough to do it a few times with, with several playwrights um, whose names I won't drop. But you know, like that it's it's that thing where you go in and you just. Bat- I mean, I will drop one. It was Lily Katz when I did Timeshare. Uh, there was no script. There was not, not even passages. There was nothing. And we just went, it's Lally. We'll be okay. And literally two weeks before we started, we got a copy. And that was not what we ended up doing either. You know, it, it is just, it is how it runs because you get into the room and you do it, you do it, you do a few scenes and you you've, you spend a week on one particular moment. You think this is great, this is working. And then it's like, actually... We've cut that scene. We've cut that scene, yeah. I decided that it's not working. You guys have said that enough now. I'm like, okay. And you just have to run with it. And and, and it is a trust uh, exercise, in a sense. Um, you got to trust yourself as much as you got to trust the playwright and, and the director and and your, your fellow performers to just hang in there really and and know that at the end of it that there will be something that we're we're putting together and and what the beauty of it is it's really it makes it a lot more collaborative and you can mm. you can get a sense of where you're heading and sometimes it can get a little bit confusing and sometimes sure. it can get frustrating but that's kind of the beauty of it too i mean you know it's it's great to do a play that's already been written and done a hundred times but it's also great to do something that you you've had a hand in creating and and um you know the effect that it's having on audiences. I had a friend who I didn't realise was there last night came in and she saw me briefly afterwards and she said, I was so confused through the whole thing, but it was incredible. And I was like, that's that's a great, that's a great review. Fantastic. <laughs> that's exactly kind of what we're heading for because it's just making people, it's, it's thought-provoking, which is what you want theatre to be. 
a lot of the time, you know. It's one of the things I found fascinating about it too is that it's the sort of work in which the audience can bring so much interpretation to it to actually tell themselves to question what is going on in each of the three strands and particularly yeah. uh, the, the the sequence set in the past which has a, a very kind of heart of darkness yeah. kind of journey to it then following that up with a, a very contemporary sequence in which again you can still interrogate and question and not only ask yourself where does it fit within a narrative yeah. but Kind of what is going on within that scene? What are, what are the, what's the subtext, etc.? Matt, as a director, trying to balance those different demands of the script and allow the audience to explore the work for themselves rather than telling them too much or, mm. or forcing them to to think in a certain way. How do you, as a director? Keep the work open in that way so that you're not shutting down uh, possibilities. Yeah, I think it's about constantly um, allowing it to be the questions to be really, really active in the piece. I think because the work has got sort of different modes, it's about each of the modes that it does fall into being really fulfilling and really complete in themselves, that they have their own internal logic. So you can watch it and feel like each one is a complete sort of jewel in itself in some ways. But it's also sort of about leaving gaps. Like in many ways, it's actually for the audience not answering everything. It's making sure there's space always around it. And that might just be in the thematics, but it also might be in the way in in the way we're using light, the way we're using sound, the way we're staging it. So there's a constant sense of it. There's actually room for an active imagination from the audience. I think if you answer everything and everything's at full information all the time there's no room for an audience to participate so you have to leave space there and Matt um, was very clear like for something that was quite unclear when we started he was very clear about the direction that we were going to take and at no point did it ever feel like th- there was moments where I was sitting there in particular the second act which you speak of the contemporary piece where I was like I don't I'm not sure how this fits I don't understand what the link is and how we we're, we're going to portray the link or how is the audience even going to pick up that there's a link or but uh, he was very clear on we don't need to worry about that so much because the link will be evident, and and it is. I mean, they are three different narratives, and people pick their own and they they have their own ideas about what each narrative means. But the uh, I had someone t- basically give me the rundown of the piece on opening night in great detail, and I was like, that you did that in seventy five minutes. It took us four weeks to work that <laughs> shit out, and I was like, how'd you do that? <laughs> You know, so it was. It's working, which is incredible. I think it's. Um, yeah, no, I think I think it does work, but it's also. Um, I mean, for me, often working on a show like this is like thinking about a piece of music. It's more like you know the way a symphony or something is put together, and the various movements of it. And there's a whole way to lead an audience through it rhythmically. Um, there's a lot of just work of you know bringing out motifs. There's a lot of that idea throughout the show. There's lots of reoccurring little thoughts. There's lots of reoccurring imagery, and if you just sort of allow those to bubble up for an audience, I think it does a lot of sort of you know unconscious work um and it's also about you know Declan writes on the page very clear worlds like it's very uh he wants almost three separate plays to be on stage that you cannot stage fully so we end up creating like this production we create sort of a theatrical machine for it Mm. to occur within we didn't you know there is no real fully rendered house for the second part there is no fully rendered river which the young man is going up in the um in the first act you know we have to find a sort of a theatrical construct that just allows the audience's imagination to conjure those places and which it certainly does uh the the design is beautiful the the staging is very very strong uh you mentioned david chisholm the composer mm. you've worked with david uh 
Yeah, David wrote the score for the Bloody Chamber a few years ago, That's the right. three harps. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which was beautiful as well. So, and uh, I think he's uh, speaking of David Chisholm. He's just launched the program for the. Bendigo Exploratory Music... I, I can never remember its full title, but Bendigo International Exploratory Music Festival, I think. Wow. Yeah. Or Festival of Music, something like that. So uh, congratulations to him on that, and congratulations to you guys for this production, which is not... It's one of those works that, again, is not going to be to everybody's taste. If people want a nice, clear, three-act structure and, and narrative spelt out for them, this is not the show for you. But if you want uh, a theatrical work that is rich and resonant and will have you questioning what you are watching and trying to find your own narrative and own connecting threads, then it's definitely the play that you should see. Uh, I Am a Miracle is the work on at the Malthouse Theatre until the 9th of August. Uh, more details at malthousetheatre.com.au. Just before I let you go, Matt, given that you were just recently announced as the new Artistic mm. Director of the Malthouse, what can you tell us about next year? Oh, I don't want to give it away, yes, but, um, you know, we're at the moment, we're crunching together the program and the brochure and it's all getting ready to go, but look, I think Malthouse is you know, a lot of the things we've been talking about today, like it's we're looking at the work that we can work with very, very collaboratively and how we create it. We're always interested in ideas that are going to be really subversive and provocative and make sure we're sparking lots of conversations in our foyers. He really changed one too when they made the announcement halfway through rehearsals. <laughs> he became a he very everything changed. The whole room, the whole energy shifted. He Thanks, became, Bert. That's okay. <laughs> and Bert, what are you up to next? Uh, I go to Sydney uh, the day after we close this, and uh, I do High Society the musical up in Sydney at the Hayes Theatre so a little bit of light and fluff back to a bit of light and fluff for me which will be I'm really quite looking forward to because after Birdland and this it's been a pretty heavy uh, uh, few months and um, uh, it'll be nice to just um, just Click up, kick my heels up and do a bit of jazz. <laughs> so, oh, I look yeah. forward to hearing about that as well. I'll keep my eye open for the reviews. As we said, I Am a Miracle by playwright Declan Green on now at the Malthouse Theatre uh, at 113 Sturt Street, South Bank until the 9th of August. More info at malthousetheatre.com.au. Matt, Bert, thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, thanks, Richard. Thanks. It's just coming up to 10 minutes to 11am. Smart Arts, the program you're listening to. 3RRR, the station you're tuned to, 102.7 on your FM dial and streaming around the planet at rrr.org.au, wherever you are in the world today. I hope you're having a good day. Uh, My next guest is Sarah Aiken, and she's just joined me in the studio. She's a Melbourne-based dancer, choreographer and teacher, uh, and last night opened her new work, Set at Dance House. Sarah, hello. Hi. How you going? All right, yeah. Good, good, good. So you're a housemate at Dance House, and for people who don't know what that means, um, it, it means you're a resident at uh, at Dance House and with the opportunity uh, to, through that uh, program, that, to create new work. Uh, how's it, how's, how have you found the experience of being uh, uh, in residence at Dance House? Um, it's been really great. It's such a generous program. We have access to the space for, you know, weeks um, to kind of play and build the work and then a, a guaranteed performance outcome. So that kind of structure is pretty rare. Um, and, it, yeah, it felt very luxurious to have that space and time and support to kind of work towards the the final product as opposed to being i don't know being in a in your own lounge room or kind of in a a studio for one day a week or something like that yeah or having a two-week development and not knowing what the next 
kind of part of the project's going to be. So knowing that I had a starting point and an end point, it's a really supported way of creating work. So tell us about SET, uh, about the, the new work that you've created. Was it... Well, actually, let me rephrase that question. Is the work you've made what you expected to be making at the beginning of this process, or has it gone down a completely different route, as often happens uh, through the, the process of making? I think the outcome has sort of surprised me a little. I think it's very in line with with the ideas that I started working with, but the the aesthetic and the structure of the work is kind of, yeah, sort of, grown beyond me in a way which is kind of exciting it's kind of fun it's a work for one dancer and objects yes lots of objects tell us what that means well I started the work um I made a short work for Lucy Guerin's pieces for small spaces where I just got a bunch of big long cardboard tubes and stuck them on my arms and legs and that was kind of the the catalyst for for this longer work um, I just got really interested in the like the beauty and the elegance of these objects and the simultaneous absurdity, the fact that I am a, a young woman with cardboard tubes on my arms and legs <laughs> and managing to look graceful and elegant, but at the same time, ridiculous. Um, so I'm playing with a lot of different objects now, but kind of that sort of negotiation between absurdity and, and beauty and... These overtly meaningful images that are also slightly ironic or kind of undercut. Meaningful images in what way? I've been working a lot with with metaphors. So every object that I'm dealing with has inherent meanings and socially constructed meanings that people kind of apply to everything that we kind of deal with. So they can represent, they can be symbols for things. So I've kind of built some of these images that really kind of play to that sort of meaningful metaphor but also have a sense of the banal or ridiculous to them. Yeah. That notion of structuring a work on multiple levels is one that fascinates me because it means that everybody's going to read it differently and you're you're pushing your audience to to be thinking simultaneously on two or three different levels as well. They're watching the dance, they're interpreting the meaning, they're interpreting multiple meanings from some of the objects that you're Mm. presenting with them. Um, You clearly want to push your audiences to a degree. You don't want to make just a, a safe ride for them. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I don't think it's a, it's a work that really that is hard work to watch because it's really fun and light, and there's a lot of humour in it in these sort of ridiculous images. But at the same time, I expect the audience to come with with all of their context and perspective and to be reading these objects based on their experience. So I can't really control how they're going to read some of the images, which is really interesting to me. And some people will see the images as beautiful and sublime and some people will be like, what is she doing? (laughs) And and I really like that sort of fine kind of point between those. Take us back to the beginning of the work, as you said, when you were making it for uh, the showing at uh, Pieces of Small Spaces uh, at uh, Lucy Guerin, Inc. Why put these cardboard tubes on your arms and legs to begin with? What what did you want to explore there? Because in the imagery, it, it's almost like you're a kind of uh, a stilt walker who's been turned upside down um, and then extra tubes on your arms. So And people can see the photo I'm talking about at dancehouse.com.au. It's a fascinating image, but how did that come about? What what were you wanting to, to play with and explore at, right at that early point? Um, I actually found the tubes. I was on residency in, in Germany and 
there was a, a group task to just come up with a, a performance for five minutes and I was like, what am I doing? Went and pulled these things. They were all filled with cobwebs and spiders and I was like, I'll just put my arms in these. I don't know. It was sort of just instinct. But something about the the image that they create, the, the symbol of connection, of extension, of reach, um, just really kind of grabbed me in a way. So that idea of extending away from yourself and the intimacy and the distance that they provide and this sort of, yeah, the way they transform my body, I find really fun and interesting. They they turn me into a creature and into an object and into a, yeah. I find it interesting that you did this in Germany, that you were already extended, you'd stretched away from <laughs> Australia, and while you're there, you're then kind of literally, as you've just said, extending yourself again, yeah, as yeah. if almost as if subconsciously trying to lengthen your arms to reach back to home. I just or... want to be bigger. <laughs> uh, what is it about dance as an art form that, that fascinates you, and, and as a, particularly as a, as a performer and choreographer, why, why have you selected dance as, the, as your art form? I mean, I think it just goes back to sharing a, a space and a time with other bodies and everyone has a body and the audience can relate to my body in a way and there's there's things that are different about that. But the the I guess the way that we're sharing the space and the time in live performance, it does something that... Other art forms can't. I don't know, and that's not very well articulated, but, um, yeah, this dichotomy of intimacy and distance that happens in performance as well. It's like I'm a performer and I go on this side of the room and in your audiences and you're on this side of the room, but when it comes down to it, we're just people in a room sharing the same hour together, which... And yeah. Which is often a magic experience as well. But yeah. it's, it's one of the things that no matter how well filmed uh, someone's documentation of their dance practice might be, for example, it's, it's never even It's close. never as yeah. good as watching it live. Yeah. For some people, though, contemporary dance in particular is one of the most dense and abstract and difficult art forms. I think contemporary dance does scare some people mm. off. Um, I, I adore contemporary dance. In fact, I think I, li- I like it certainly much more than I like classical uh, ballet, for example. Um, why do you think dance is so difficult for some people is it because it it's not uh, a clear narrative that they can easily read that it forces them to to contemplate and consider yeah I think a lot of people who don't have a lot of experience with dance often feel feel uncomfortable with not knowing what what they're supposed to get from it but I think that whatever you get from especially a work like this is 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 you know no matter how much education you have in the in the art form you're going to get something from it and that is absolutely right and you don't need to worry about not getting it because it's such an abstract art form and if I really wanted to communicate something clearly I'd just tell you <laughs> you know you so, could just write it down exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so I think just being sharing the space and sharing that sort of kinesthetic exchange is is sort of enough and as you've said, there's a, a, a real humour in this work as mm. well, which is, again, going to be an entry point for people for who may have been thinking, oh, contemporary dance, not sure if I'm entirely comfortable with it. The fact that there's a playfulness to this work of yours set yeah. uh, is then going to be, a, I think, yeah, perhaps a door in for, for people who've been standing outside for a while. Yeah, it's very fun. It's very silly, <laughs> but also deadly serious. 
The work is called Set, uh, created by Sarah Aiken. It's on at Dance House, uh, 150 Princes Street in North Carlton. Uh, it's on now until the 26th of July, and more information at www.dancehouse.com.au. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It is eight minutes past 11am. It's time for us to talk visual art on the program now. New issue series seven, Thread, is an exhibition that's showing from today until the 6th of September at Monsalvat in Eltham. Uh, And it's the latest in a series of biannual exhibitions shown alternatively in Australia and China. Uh, Joining us to tell us more, we have curators uh, Liliana Barbieri and Denise Keel Bedford. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Richard. So, Liliana, let's start with you. Um, the the name of the exhibition, uh, New Issue, uh, is that is Mandarin for female art. Mm-hmm. Where did this series of exhibitions begin, and how did you get involved? Ah, well, um, I, it goes back about. 10 or so years and uh, I was in Beijing uh, with Denise and we had our very first exhibition and we called it New Issue Uh, and it, it, it then became sort of a biannual exhibition flowing on from that point uh, because we felt that it, um, it would be really good to have a connection with our artists of other cultures. doesn't have to be always Chinese, but, um, yeah, so it, it, it started as a, as a kind of cultural uh, uh, exchange, really, in a way. And has grown, clearly, yeah. given that this is the, uh, the seventh iteration of it. Yes, that's correct. So uh, in terms of uh, bringing uh, artists and their work to Australia, that must be a bit of an undertaking. Yes, yes, in a word, yes, yes it is. Uh, so usually in the beginning uh, there is a theme uh, that, uh, so each new issue has a different theme. And so then uh, generally I suppose I will look at um, the artists. Um, this time um, I came up with a theme, we were just discussing that, and that theme came through the fact that I had been making some artwork using thread. And I contacted Liliana. I said, we're coming towards the uh, next new issue series and would you like to join me in curating this exhibition? And so then I realised, well, actually Liliana came back and she said, oh, Thread has so many different uh, interpretations. So that is really the beginning. And then looking at artists who we think um, can create uh, or take up that challenge to create um, based on the theme. Now, in terms of in work that is exploring that theme, are we being literal here uh, uh, or are we being both literal but then also thinking about the meaning of thread, the, the, the threads of life, how we weave mm. narratives together, all of those kind it's of ideas? Really good question. Uh, I think most of us have tried to incorporate some idea of the physical thread However, 
most of the work is really about the metaphorical, the psychological threads. Um, myself, I've worked with the thread of memory. Uh, others have worked with uh, cultural thread connect connections. So there's a little bit more than just the physical, you know, idea of stitching and <laughs> thread that that a lot of thought has gone behind uh, all of the works, actually. And following on from that, when you were asking before about uh, really the logistics of inviting artists and uh, artists coming into um, Australia, this time from Hong Kong, um, those artists have to be extremely considerate of the fact that the artwork has to travel. Mm -hmm. um, they are creating artwork for a space that they have not seen before. So that is quite challenging for them. Apart from their own disciplines and how they interpret the theme. So in this particular instance, uh, we've been fortunate that each of the artists were able to actually physically carry their work into uh, or on the plane through customs. And through customs. <laughs> I'd, I'd, lo customs. I'd love to be in the queue, kind of watching the customs officers go. Oh. <laughs> Anything to declare? Yes, art. <laughs> well, it was interesting because uh, one of the artists, um, she contacted me. She makes a lot of work uh, using wood. And she said, so what's the situation? Yeah, what's that's going to be problematic. <laughs> yes, what's the situation with wood? And um, so we had great discussions about that. And I said, look, uh, you, you will have to declare it. I said, generally, if it is... Um, completely sealed um, it should it should be fine so in the beginning she decided that uh, well she would change her mind and do work on paper <laughs> and um, when I picked her up from the airport on Monday morning uh, I said how did you go she said well actually uh, I have got work that are on small timber frames but when I went through customs I declared everything she said they were just so really wonderful because everything was completely sealed and I kept getting little emails saying we're through customs <laughs> we're through customs <laughs> so Liliana how many artists in total are exhibiting in new issue seven thread at Montsylvain well interestingly there are seven women artists exhibiting in series seven mm. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to go from now on <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get, by the time we, you get to 16, we, it's yeah, going to be a bit yeah, of a challenge. Yeah, it's going to be very challenging. Uh, so uh, three of the artists actually um, were given, a, um, were very happy to receive a grant uh, and were able to make the journey. And so they're here uh, representing Hong Kong and, you know, uh, available for the opening. So we're really excited that they're, um, they're able to join us because that doesn't always happen. So on that note, we actually do need to thank the Hong Kong Arts Development Council for funding the three Hong Kong artists to be able to come out to Melbourne. So that's very exciting for yeah, us. Absolutely. And it, it reinforces the value of, of culture and the value of art as a means of connecting with, with different cultures and different communities. That really is that classic. The, the things that I think sometimes make it easiest to explore a new culture are food and art. I, I think um, we have done a lot of that over the last week. Uh, the um, Hong Kong artists um, have been exposed to the Carlton culture and the, you know, Warrandyte culture, culture and the, <laughs> the pub culture. We made sure that we went, you know, did the the pub and the, it, you know, foodie 
sort of aspects of Melbourne and they absolutely have loved it. So it's been a really successful week. <laughs> and also the home-cooked meal because generally if if I'm in China, uh, the way that the Chinese like to host you is they take you out to dinner. And of course in Australia what we love to do when we host guests is we bring them into the home and we make a home-cooked meal for them. So that is part of their experience as well, to come into the home, have the home-cooked meal. And in this case, um, cooked by Liliana's husband, who uh, has... Passionate uh, Italian Passionate Italian cooking, (laughs) yes. Fantastic. So the exhibition is New Issue Series 7 Thread. It's uh, opening tonight uh, from 6.30pm until 8.30pm in the Long Gallery at Montsalvat, 7 Hillcrest Avenue in Eltham. If you've not been to Montsalvat before, you can jump on the website and find out more information, montsalvat.com.au. And so that's the opening tonight, 6.30 till 8.30, and then the exhibition runs through until the 6th of September. So plenty of opportunities for people to get along and look at your work, ladies, and the, the work yes. of the other artists involved. Yes, that's right. And M- Montsalvet is just such a lovely um, area to explore, so I'd encourage anyone that, you know, would like to have a nice day out. It's open on the weekend. It's beautiful. Make a day of it. Wander around the grounds and explore and mm. kind of try to avoid a wedding. I'm sure there'll be one happening somewhere. <laughs> there has been every time I've been out to Montsalvat. But, uh, uh, so, look, as I said, the exhibition on now until the 6th of September, New Issue Series 7 Thread. I've been chatting to curators Denise Keel-Bedford and Liliana Barbieri. Thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Just before those announcements, we heard from local psychedelic outfit King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Their track, God is in the Rhythm, all ten minutes of it. Uh, And before King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, we heard from Spoonbill from the brand new album Tinderbox. And I played uh, a very, very short track to begin with, Cloud Cycle, and then followed that up with uh, Give Me Rain from the same album. It's time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. I'll be back with you, uh, I was going to say tomorrow, no, next Thursday. Between 9am and midday Stick around, Chris Gill coming at you Very, very soon I'm going to leave you with a track by Hate Rock Called Rent Boy Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast You can listen to Smart Arts Every Thursday morning from 9am To 12pm here on Triple R This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci